was the problem was we had we had too many mountain bikes and uh, i always <laughs> had been a a fan of you know modern architecture um i've been kind of just an enthusiastic DIYer, you know, had an engineering degree from CU and really just decided to build my own, you know, nice looking shed. There was definitely an evolution in the company figuring out how to prefab something in a way that we could flat pack it versus what I did. You know, I just bought lumber and stick frame and built something in my backyard. Being an athlete, especially at a high level, is a very entrepreneurial endeavor. It involves, you know, building a personal brand. You're, you know, have especially in an individual sport like mountain biking, you know, you're kind of out there selling yourself, you're building your own personal brand and making relationships. And business is really, there's a real natural transition. Welcome to the ProCo 360 podcast. I'm Dave Tabor, hosting ProCo 360 because I love getting to know Colorado's entrepreneurs and leaders and sharing my conversations with them with you. My guests have figured out how to build very successful businesses while being collaborative, enjoying all that Colorado has to offer, and doing that with other talented people who share their values. This episode is with Jeremy Nova, co-founder of Studio Shed, a Colorado company that has grown fast by creating super cool sheds used for offices, parent apartments, man caves and she caves, and art and music studios. These aren't the sheds you see in the Home Depot parking lot. These are awesome. I'm so excited to talk to Jeremy because Studio Shed is a tremendous example of a founder who tried to buy something, wasn't able to find it, decided to create it themselves, and then said, hey, this is a business. I want to talk about that process and how now that they've shown the big guys in the market that this high-end opportunity exists, how Studio Shed plans to compete with them. And compete is a good word because Jeremy is a 15-time pro bike racing U.S. champion and a past Olympian. I think you're the first Olympian I've ever had on the show, Jeremy. I'm glad you could join me on Proco 360 via Zoom. Uh, thanks a lot, Dave. I'm glad to be here. And uh, yeah, that's an, that's an exciting first. So yeah, happy to be here. The Studio Shed story sort of glosses over how you went from making one shed for yourself to building the Studio Shed company with a co-founder and with 30 employees. I mean, now you've got several models and hundreds of configurations. So talk about your first creation. I mean, what problem really were you trying to solve? Well, the uh, the birth of Studio Shed did actually grow out of my mountain bike racing career, um, which feels like a lifetime ago now, as you said. But uh, you know, my wife and I were both professional athletes for about 15 years. She was a professional mountain bike racer as well. Um, and we had a problem of too many mountain bikes and not enough space. Uh, we had a small ranch house in Boulder in downtown. And that was really, you know, that was the problem was we had, we had too many mountain bikes and, uh, I always <laughs> had been a, a fan of, you know, modern architecture. Um, I've been kind of just an enthusiastic DIYer, you know, had an engineering degree from CU and really just decided to build my own, you know, nice looking shed for, for our bikes. That was really the, um, that was the beginning. I didn't really ever envision of starting a company based on that concept, but my now business partner, Mike Koenig, uh, you know, he was sort of the business guy in the relationship, I would say, uh, you know, I was still mountain bike racing full time for several years as we got the business off the ground. And he was the one that really said, you know, hey, we, we should, um, you know, we, we could sell these. We, you know, we should, we should make a business here. And so that was the, uh, that was the, the start. 
So as a mechanical engineer and a do-it-yourselfer, I mean, did you try really very hard to find what you wanted, something you could adapt? Or, or were you took a quick look and said, what the hell, I'm going to build my own? I, I actually did look um, at, at the beginning. There, there were, and there really wasn't anything on the market. Um, there were a couple companies in California doing some niche high-end prefab, but they didn't even really sell outside of California or install outside of California, and it was really price prohibitive. And so, I it was just you know, especially at that point, you know, I said I'm just going to do this myself, and went and you know had metal fabricated and glass wow. cut and all those kind of things, and then it was really it was just for me. So, you know, yeah. it kind of did just the way I wanted. So as a, I mean, your background in mechanical engineering sounds like it would be a fun sort of project for you to build, you know, something better than, and, and that term better than actually is from a recent interview with a guy named Avram Elmakis from uh, Climber. But, you know, the idea of better than just seeing an opportunity for something better than and how fulfilling that can be. I mean, was that sort of a motivator? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I've always been, I, I think that I, I'm the kind of person that I like to get my hands dirty. Um, you know, building something yourself creates a tremendous sense of satisfaction. And so, and also, you know, doing something that's high quality, you know, that that's, I think oftentimes when you do something yourself, you, when you're building, for example, you'll often build something to a level of quality that you wouldn't necessarily find in a commoditized product. Um, yeah. You know, and we've tried to retain that ethos, obviously with Studio Shed as the products that we sell today. Yeah. So, I mean, you really wanted something way cooler, way nicer, nicer quality than was on the market. I mean, do you think that the initial product you built is anywhere near sort of what you've established now as your norm? The the product that I built initially, if anything, the product is significantly better. You know, I think there were some things I did certainly back then that were a lot of, um, you know, form over function. You know, the I think on my own, on my own initial pre-company project, you know, the glass ended up leaking over time because I didn't build the windows <laughs> right. And the, the door wasn't like a proper residential door, you know, kind of stuff. So, so now actually it's been sort of that marriage of that design aesthetic, but actually with you know, proper residential quality materials. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, no, that, that actually does make sense. Um, that, and I think we're seeing this more and more in industry that the idea of standardized production actually adds to quality. And I think maybe 50 years ago, it, it diminished quality. Now, it, because of the standards to which you're able to manufacture, you can achieve that. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And that is the case with, um, you know, the construction industry in general, um, factory fabrication, there are certain things you can do in a factory that are just impossible to do in the field. And there, there are other things in the field that make more sense too, which is why, you know, we've sort of honed in on this hybrid prefab model where there's still, you know, certain things we do in the field that make sense and what we do in the factory makes sense. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk a bit about that because installation is something that I think could be a bailiwork. We're going to come to that in a minute. But as you, you know, what did you have to learn about building the structure first? Like, and, and how did you learn enough to succeed? I, I, I envision you as a guy maybe who, instead of some other magazine, you have popular mechanics under your bed. Yeah, maybe. I, uh, you know, I, th there's really no substitute as a DIYer for just getting your hands dirty. I, I think, you know, you learn some things the hard way building, you know, I, I think there was a, there was definitely an evolution in the company figuring out how to prefab something in a way that we could flat pack it versus what I did. You know, I just mm -hmm. bought lumber and stick frame and built something in my backyard without any consideration for shipping constraints or panelizations or those type of things. So in terms of building a business, there was a lot more learning process around that transition than there was, you know, me learning how to, you know, put two by fours together in my own backyard. 
that so was a lot did, more straightforward. Yeah. So what did you learn sort of the hard way? You must have had some epic fails along the way. There, there is no shortage of examples of things <laughs> we learned the hard way. Um, I think the, the biggest, probably one of the most difficult things, and it still remains a big challenge for the company, is the installation network. Um, you know, because obviously there, we do we sell a lot of DIY kits, um, and it is within the reach of a handy homeowner. But the reality is, this is a project, you know, a backyard home office or something that the majority of people want to have uh, installed for them. And to try to serve and grow a national footprint of high quality contractors that can build the product for people and they're the kind of people that we would want in our own homes, um, you know, building that network out and the learning that is that was associated with, you know, everything about that, like the shipping of the product to, you know, having someone receive it and the, you know, the efficiencies that you need to create to begin to get some kind of scale with those type of endeavors is that there, there's really no shortage of things. And, and we did learn stuff the hard way, you know, bringing on substandard installers, not because we knew that at the time, but because, you know, that's yeah. the way it ended yeah. up being and then having to rectify those at great cost and, and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I could imagine that, you know, as a young company that wants to maintain its reputation, you get a bad installer out there and now you got to go out there, right. And fix it at your own cost. Yeah. And now, I mean, that is an example of, I mean, there were times where we had to, you know, we, we had to fly, you know, fly our crew people out from, you know, Colorado to, you know, service a, like a significant project that went wrong or something like that. And, and we did that and we, you know, we don't, fortunately we don't have to do that anymore because yeah. we do have a, um, a, you know, a much better process in place for building that team and the, the professionalism has elevated significantly, but those are, those are the kind of bumps that, you know, we had on the, on the road, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I could imagine though, as a guy who, I mean, you're, you're a champion racer, you don't like to lose. So the idea that, you know, something went wrong, you know, this is in a fledgling business, you got to make it right. Yeah. Almost and, that's, and that is that. Yeah, almost. I, that's that's exactly right. Like almost at any cost is, and I think that's one of the, you know, that's that's a really unique challenge of businesses in general. And I think what we were doing, you know, we're, we're not we weren't selling T-shirts or something. You know, it was a complicated project with a lot of moving pieces, and so there there are a lot of different ways where things can go wrong and can be fixed or you know whatever that is. I think the other component is that. Um, home improvement projects are generally a pretty emotional project for mm. homeowners. Um, they can be, you know, you're in someone's personal space and, you know, your, your home is your castle, so to speak. So, you know, I need, there, there's, a, there's that additional level of kind of emotional attachment that can happen. Um, you know, even though we always knew we could get, make the project right for people that were, you know, that had a, a unsatisfying experience at some level, um, th there's, there was a lot of detachment that you need to have. Did you ever, did you ever just have to tear one down and just start throw it away and start over? That we actually, I, we actually have not had to do that to <laughs> actually just tear one down and start over, but, um, but pretty close, um, yeah. you know, but yeah. You know, and we we're talking a little bit about, you know, you've got to manage costs through this fledgling business piece and you're not going to be highly efficient at the beginning. That's just the nature of starting a company. I mean, what, what are some things you had to develop to keep costs in line so that you could be competitive to what people might envision this sort of thing ought to cost? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, and that, that's still, that's still a process that's evolving right now. Cause we actually still, you know, we, we retail a pretty, it, you know, it, it is a high end product. And so we, we have not really cut anything out of it on a production level, um, as far as like material quality and choices. Um, but we, we do really strive to try to make the installation piece easier. Um, as I said, that's the, that's one of the big challenges is if we can, make the field labor piece more efficient by improvements in the factory, which we have more control over those. That's really where the, the area for the biggest scope in future cost savings is for us and where our continued focus is. It's not so much about using a cheaper material or, you know, something like that. Cause it just doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, you know, you can still, yeah. if you can create that efficiency in the area, you can control in the factory, you can save a lot of cost in the field. And that's where we're focused. That makes sense. And I would think it too, it, it would make installation go quickly. The customer experience be more satisfying. If pop, 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 the thing goes together and there's not a lot of monkeying around with things that have to be adjusted in the field, well, you're nodding. Yeah, I am because that I, the uh, it's that's exactly right, and I you know I think it's interesting because a lot of prefab that's that's sort of the promise of prefab architecture, and you have companies that take it to the level of we you know they manufacture entire whole huge modules in a fat you know large factories with uh, you know huge equipment moving cranes and things like that, and then they're craned into place. There are a lot of drawbacks with that. Um, you know, we've even tried to sell off display models that are fully built, and it's very difficult oftentimes to get those into a backyard. Mm. And so we think there are really significant advantages to flat pack prefab, um, yeah. where it's kind of that hybrid model. And that's really where we're putting a lot of energy is making that process as efficient as possible. That makes sense. And, and just so listeners can have a good sense um, of what you're actually building and delivering, what's kind of the range of sort of basic to fully tricked out, maybe in two categories. Maybe one is in a living space and the other one might be like a, a, a studio, a work, a work from, you know, work behind your house kind of thing. Yeah, that's a great question. So there, in our product offering, we have a few different product lines, uh, the Signature Series, the Portland Series, and the Summit Series. And there's a huge spectrum of options and configurations. We have a 3D builder. You can go on and you know, build and design your own. But there are two kind of major you know, buckets. One is the, the single room backyard studio. So to about 120 square feet is the most popular size, so 10 by 12 that's a perfect one room office or, you know, hobby studio, creative studio, um, you know, a little home gym or yoga space. And then the other piece is the larger structures. That's like, you know, like a, a true small guest house, like an accessory dwelling unit with a kitchenette bathroom, you know, either a studio or a single bedroom. Um, and those are more like four to 500 square feet. Those are kind of the two major yeah, buckets. And, and price range again, for the listeners, for the for the yeah. the single room studios like the typical typical all in with foundation and installation and you got your electrical wiring and you're set up you know twenty five to thirty thousand dollars in most most of our popular markets and then the accessory dwelling units are you know you the kind of not not sky's the limit but it's you know it's probably you're you're starting at eighty ninety thousand and then up to you know one hundred fifty hundred and seventy by the time you're fully outfitted. Yeah. And, yeah. and listeners, if you want to know what 150 or $180,000 gets for you, go to the, the, go to the studio shed website. It's they're really cool. Really cool. Um, <laughs> they are, I mean, glass and metal sides and I mean, really cool looking buildings. Um, so talk about, Oh, you know what? Let me first 
take a quick break and remind listeners, this is ProCo360, named Best Denver Podcast Three Years Running. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and this is the show featuring entrepreneurs who can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. I'm speaking with Jeremy Nova, co-founder of Studio Shed, and thanks to our sponsors, First Bank, Proco 360's newest sponsor, uh, Kinsley Meetings, MicroStar Keg Logistics, and Via Technologies. These great companies support Colorado businesses and entrepreneurs, and they support this show. Also, thanks to the Colorado Chamber of Commerce for its support for me and Proco 360. So let's get back to the business of Studio Shed, Jeremy. And would you talk about sort of the process and the time it took to go from making, you know, your first shed to, you know, and deciding this should be a business and then becoming, you know, a company? Yeah, we've been, um, so we, we started in 2008. Um, so we're, this is our, I think it was 13th year now. Um, and, uh, the, it's, uh, the, the 13 year overnight success, right? Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, but we, the one thing I, I, we started small and that was, that really helped. Like it was a side business initially for both my business partner and myself. And it, yeah, I was still racing full time. He was involved in another business. And so we, it, it was, uh, you know, it, it grew to more of a hobby pretty quickly, but we weren't necessarily trying to make something really big right out, right off the bat. And I think looking back, that's really beneficial. I think that, mm. you know, people that do have, uh, you know, an idea, I think, you know, starting small and growing organically, that was advice we had gotten from other people as well at the time, you know, don't try to make it huge right away. And that, that helped. And so for the first few years, it was really, you know, even like first one or two years, it was, we sold a couple to our friends. It allowed us wow. to, you know, uh, you know, learn a lot about just whether it was the manufacturing process, we outsourced the manufacturing to a, a shop that had some excess floor space. Initially, we started during the recession in 2008. So there was a lot of excess capacity at that time, uh, which helped. And so the, initially that was all it was. It was just outsourced production. We would get the occasional order and fulfill it. And, and then it, it started to grow pretty quickly uh, in about maybe 2011, 2012. Um, my partner, Mike, became more of a full-time endeavor for him. We opened our own production facility. And again, that was very small at first, uh, you know, only a handful of, of employees. And then that facility grew uh, over the years. And then, you know, really 2016, 2017 was when we started to get, you know, quite a bit more, yeah. um, I'd, I'd say scale behind it. You know, it's still, there, there's still not tremendous scale when you're talking about obviously like large businesses, but it's enough that there are some, you know, meaningful improvements that we can make now that were not possible previously. Yeah. You well, know, how did you fund this? I mean, going from building them in a, you know, a rented space and paying somebody on a contract basis, right? You just pay them when you have the work to going to where you actually have employees, have a space. How'd you fund that? Uh, so we, we, we self-funded the whole thing initially. So we, you know, we each made some you know, capital contributions. They were small initially. And that was, again, that's another big benefit of starting small. You know, you can keep a handle on that stuff. And then, you know, it was kind of traditional and we started to have some orders and we got, you know, a bank line of credit. And then that grew over time, you know, in line with the order file. And so it was all just, you know, it was, it was kind of personally guaranteed debt, you know, for the oh, most part yeah. initially. Stressful, and huh? so yeah. the stress, it was, yeah, stressful. Um, and then, so we did have in 2016, um, then there, we, we do have a majority, uh, investor now, um, 
as of as of 2016. So that um, we have access now to probably you know some more initiatives and capital that we didn't previously. So yeah, but I yeah, can see at some the, point that was the evolution. How's it changed now that somebody is a majority owner and you're you know not? It, we we're, we still have like, we have a lot of autonomy, which is nice. Um, and so, you know, I think what, you know, the, really what they did was really help get our ducks in a row, particularly on a manufacturing level and things like that. Um, you know, the, it was the typical like founder thing where it was like a little bit, there was some stuff that we just weren't that good at and it was a little bit of a mess. And so incorporating some of those best practices, that's really what's changed. Um, the day-to-day -day and the culture are not really any different. Um, and my partner and I still have pretty much like, you know, mo pretty, pretty much full autonomy other than like we need approval if we're going to make a huge little expenditure or something like that. That's cool to hear because I think a lot of times you hear like a, uh, you know, an investor or private equity or whatever come in and, you know, it just, that's not what happens. Yeah. And it's not, and that's, yeah. And that, I can see how that would be the case, right? Like we've sort of had like some glimmers of when that happens like that, but generally it's been really positive. That's nice to hear. Once you started hiring employees and at that time, how many sheds were you building in a year? And roughly now, you know, what's the, what's the quantity? Boy, I, you know, back, I'm not exactly, I, mean, I don't know, 20, 30 was maybe some of those yeah. small numbers back then, you know, it was a few a month kind of thing, yeah. one, two a month. And then, you know, now it's more like, you know, it's, it's 10 to 15 projects out the door a week, um, wow. you know, so, yeah. um, you know, 600, 700 a year right now. And that's everything from, you know, like I said, one, that, that could be one single room studio, or it could be a thousand square foot accessory dwelling unit. So there's a huge mix in, in what that looks like, but that gives a sense of the, you know, kind of the, the, scale, the scale of it. Yeah. Now that we have a sense for it, I also want to compliment you on your website. It's beautiful. And, and I wonder because it's designed for people to come on and, and fantasize a little bit and sort of play around and build something. But how many times do you show up in the morning and people you've never heard from or heard of have placed an order for like 50,000 or $100,000 for a studio shed? Do they just do that? Um, it, it's funny because that does happen occasionally. Um, and so, but it, that's rare. And, uh, you know, obviously it's a high consideration purchase. There's a lot of questions people typically have, right? Like, how does this come delivered or how, yeah. you know, I mean, they're answered on the website, but it's the kind of purchase that you would expect to talk to someone and have a consultative sales process. So when we get one of those just out of the blue orders, it's pretty surprising, but we do get it, um, yeah. which is amazing that it, it shows the confidence that people have in, you know, just online purchasing in general right now that, that people are willing to, to do things like that. I, I think that's true as a trend. I also think that you've put a lot of thought into your website to not only show the 3D modeling, but to show the actual product that's out in the field to tell stories and show people that, you know, and, and I think that that instills success or, or, or confidence as well. Thanks a lot. I mean, the website, obviously, we see as our primary, you know, merchandising avenue, we have a showroom in Louisville. Um, and, but not that many people come to actually see it. It's more, you know, the website is our primary showroom. And I, I always have a, I, it's great to hear the feedback. I have a, always a punch list of things that I want to get uh, done for yeah. it. And it's never good enough. But I think, you know, we, we certainly think that, in the building industry in general, they're, they're, it's a little antiquated in terms of the use of digital tools and 
those type of things that are available. So we really want to be the industry leader in that online category. Yeah. Well, I like the way, I mean, it's, you know, 3D graphics are cool. You can see what you're doing and all that, but they don't look real. They don't look, you know, and then to put them side by side to show the success, I think works extremely well. So uh, kudos. For yeah. You. Um, Thanks a lot. We, we actually are investigating. A, um, we, we're going to probably do some, some 3D, like photorealistic interior walkthroughs because that technology has gotten so sophisticated now. Yeah. So we are going to attempt that. Um, and so we'll see. Good. I want to see it when it's done. Hey, a tricky yeah. uh, and for me, an interesting question, because there were established leaders in the shed space long before you. Uh, Tough Shed, also based in Colorado. Everyone knows them and there are others. You know, is this it seems to me this is an example of when the big guys are so established, they're doing what they're doing so successfully that they miss sort of an emerging market opportunity. And now I see them sort of stretching in your direction. How does that feel? So that is, that, that is definitely, um, that is the case. And so we don't view ourselves really as like in core competition with someone like tough shed. Um, I think that they, the, you know, selling a commodity product through, retail channels, there's obviously a huge market for that. And they operate at, you know, huge scale in terms of the number of installations and projects that they're shipping out the door, production facility, uh, you know, things like that. And so I think the, the unique opportunity is that their production process and business model is not really well suited to a, a smaller volume, more customized product offering. And there's obviously yeah. a market fit for that. Um, which is why that that's why there's a there's a viable you know long term niche here is that yeah. people really do expect and want some level of customization when they're spending the amount of money that it takes to get a high quality you know project installed yeah. in their backyard and so there's efficiencies to doing it a different way. So that's what that's what brings me to my next my next question because I'm curious about a couple of words that you use frequently in your business, right in your name, shed. Shed has an implication that's different from what you do. So why did you use that name? Well, and that's a, that is a great question, and it is an on that's an ongoing discussion um, in internally is how long and when if that branding should change. Um, you know, because we, we 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 are not doing sheds. We don't aggressively you know go after those type of search terms in our marketing. Um, you know, and things like that. We you know we're we're doing backyard studios. Almost nobody purchases our product and uses it to store their mountain bikes in anymore. Uh, and so the, you know, there's, there's certain ways that we can kind of redefine that, like what it redefine, what a backyard shed is. That is, you know, there are kind of, there's been books written about like the backyard shed, but it's actually more of like the finished studio space. And so there's kind of some playful branding things we can do to redefine what that term looks like. But, uh, you know, it, it, that, it may evolve with, with mm. the product offering as well, you know, yeah. so we've, we've done yeah. small home construction now and it's like that. It's, a, it's an ongoing discussion. Huh. Well, listeners, you heard it here first, so uh, we'll yeah. see what the new we'll see what the new name comes out to be one day, yeah. perhaps. Uh, reminding listeners, this is Proco Three Hundred and Sixty. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and this is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. I'm speaking with Jeremy Nova, co-founder of Studio Shed. Go to Proco360.com to subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. And please don't forget to rate. Proco 360 in your app when you finish this episode. Coming back from the break, I want to ask you about this other word. 
prefab. I mean, it has a connotation that some people might construe as cheap. And here you're talking about, you use the word prefabricated. That sounds a little more elegant. What's your take on that word? Yeah, so prefab is, that term has evolved quite a bit even in the, since we've been doing this, even since 2008, I think that that, that term has become much more fashionable uh, in architecture circles. Prefab construction is actually viewed, uh, I think in some ways pretty sophisticated now. There are some companies doing very high-end prefab. Um, and I think yeah. that for people that are really in the know in the industry, that, ha- that term has lost some of its negative connotations, I think. And so we don't shy away from yeah. promoting that yeah. and that, that makes sense using I mean, it. Uh, yeah. It, the, to, to my visibility into that, you know, the, the ability to main, maintain quality uh, is enhanced. So we talked about that a bit earlier, but I, uh, yeah, but I was curious about your take on the, yeah. word on the market. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's how we see it. We think, and I, I, I we agree it's uh, there, there's an opportunity to actually deliver a better product by cool. using a factory. Yeah. Let's talk about some of these, the new opportunities and trends. And one of the things I'm most curious about is, are people buying these? You mentioned when we talked to our head uh, before this, that people are starting to buy these for like short-term rentals, like Airbnb and VRBO. Are you seeing that? Well, we are. We are seeing people use it for that. Um, And it's a really compelling use case uh, for a variety of reasons. I think, you know, to take a step back, one of the big trends that is is happening in the real estate world right now is the growth of accessory dwelling units. So for people that aren't familiar with the term, an accessory dwelling unit is a second primary, you know, it's a second dwelling on the same property, right? A guest house, a granny flat. Those are the terms that have been used historically. And it, you know, it involves a separate kitchen, a separate bathroom, and some separate living space or bedroom typically. And historically, there there has been pretty, uh, there, there's been a, a fair amount of opposition to those in single family neighborhoods and a lot of zoning challenges to it. Uh, that is changing rapidly because of the housing pressure that exists in you know pretty much every high cost metro area all over the country. And so, you know, we certainly view that as a positive development. I think it's a better solution to create housing density than, you know, a lot of large multifamily infill development. And so that's where we see a lot of potential and growth and where we think, you know, a lot of this market is going because they're, they, and they're, they're great structures. They enhance, um, you know, a lot, a lot of lifestyle benefits from having something yeah, like that. I could see why someone would want to buy a product from you rather than a granny shed. That wouldn't sound good yeah. at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, all right. So uh, accessory dwelling units got that. And I can see where that, you know, some communities are going to resist it. Others will embrace it. Um, do you think we'll all get there eventually? I think, I think most communities are going to have to get there eventually. I think Boulder is a pretty good example of, you know, a community that has generally resisted development like that. And you're seeing change even now, you know, the, yeah, there, yeah. there's sort of two things that has happened. The zoning is generally liberalizing and then the specific building codes are tightening. So, you know, they have to be more energy efficient. They have to be, you know, there, there's more, more requirements around like the technical optimizations of the structure. And those are, that's fine. I think that's ways to, you know, those are good ways to mitigate the impact of those structures. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's still a conversation to be had, but th- that's generally sort of this dual prong of what's happening is liberalization of the ability to actually permit one, but then you got to jump through some more hoops to actually do it. 
Yeah, that that makes sense. And I would think too, the, the whole work from home uh, piece, I mean, there must be, uh, I, I don't know, I'd guess what, at, at least half of what you're selling are, are essentially home extended offices. Yeah, I mean, and, and of course, the the demand for that exploded last year, you know, and, yeah. and as soon as, you know, COVID hit, everybody needed a home office in their house like yesterday. So our yeah, purchase yeah. consideration period dropped dramatically. So keeping focused, you know, on the theme of the Proco 360 podcast, world-class entrepreneurs who choose Colorado, how do you feel being in Colorado? Has it made a difference? It seems almost like, you know, it's great for you to be here, but you could be doing this anywhere. Yeah, what we that's true. We could, and I think Colorado is great. I mean, I grew up. I grew up in Colorado. I'm a native Coloradan. I I love it. Have a you know deep affinity for it, and it is also a great place to do business. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's uh, there's a good work hard, play hard culture in Colorado that I think gives a lot of longevity to people's careers and motivation and things like that. Right? It's a community. It's it's uh, it's probably more balanced than some other areas of the country, but there's also, you know, you're seeing more and more real talent that uh, is available here. So, you, you know, there's, there, there's never a shortage of finding the, the right person for us in particular, as a company shipping really large, um, really large products. Yeah. It, uh, it's generally very good shipping lanes to both the West and East coast. And so mm. there are some pretty good advantages there for that, you know, shipping a large product and, uh, you know, yeah, just the, the culture in general is a, is a good fit. Um, and I think uh, I, we think Colorado has a great brand for, you know, made in Colorado. And yeah. For what you know, like one thing I didn't see much on your website, by the way, what's an average, you know, if you're shipping a, an average size studio shed across the country, what's that cost? Um, it depends. An average size. I mean, it depends a lot. And so the, the short answer is that that number really depends a lot. Depends on what length, depends on how many like you can get on the truck. thousand bucks. Yeah, it's a a thousand to yeah, it's a yeah, it's a small four digit. It it can be less. It can be less than a thousand bucks, and it can be more. But that's like the yeah, yeah. Now, one curiosity I have is I didn't see a lot of like like open land, deserted like area, little like mountain cabins. Are you doing any of that? We do. Yeah, we do uh, have some of that. So that is, uh, you know, that's, that's a less common use of our product than something, you know, that's, a, that's an accessory to someone's primary residence yeah. in a backyard. But we have done, um, you know, several projects that have been, uh, you know, raw land development, cool. small cabin type things. And it, it's yeah. a great, it's a great fit for that. Cool. My last question for you is, I mean, as a former Olympian, 15 time US pro racing champion, like, how does the rush of business even compete at all with that? I, you know, it's, it's not so much the rush I would say, but I, there is a lot of crossover. I think that, you know, being an athlete, especially at a high level is a very entrepreneurial endeavor. It involves, you know, building a personal brand, you're, you know, have, especially in an individual sport, like mountain biking, you know, you're kind of out there selling yourself, you're building your own personal brand and making relationships and business is really, there's a real natural transition to a business entrepreneur, I think from that background. And so a lot of those things that are kind of, you know, drive creating, so to speak in athletics translate pretty naturally to the business world. What about Lycra? My business partner and I will throw the Lycra on and go for a bike ride at lunch sometimes. So my, Mike is also a mountain. We, we met our, our business connection was through the mountain bike world. He was managing a semi-pro racing team um, at the time I was racing professionally. So 
a lot of mountain bike routes at Studio Shed. Oh yeah. Now I was I had a, uh, an interview with the CEO, the founder of uh, Y Cycles and Revel Bikes. You probably know who they are. And he was telling me one time he was afraid uh, at lunchtime. He was like, "I better not go over that jump because I got work to do." So yeah. crash. You probably had. I've got two. Day. I've got two little kids. I still need to wrangle. So that's my motivation for not crashing on my bike is to make sure I can still like play with the kids. <laughs> well, that's cool. Hey, let's wrap up today on Proco 360. You've been listening to my conversation with Jeremy Nova, co-founder of Studio Shed. Jeremy, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a great conversation. Listeners, thanks for joining on Proco 360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you and I and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the Proco 360 podcast and submitting a review. Thanks again to show sponsors, First Bank, Kinsley Meetings, MicroStar Keg Logistics, Via Technologies, and the Colorado Chamber of Commerce. That's the show. Live, work, love Colorado.